Amen. Most of you know, um, six months ago, our family was in Bogota, Colombia, finalizing our adoption of little Ezekiel. And uh, one day, we were walking from our apartment to a little grocery store that wasn't too far away, and uh, went to pick up some groceries for the day. And um, I don't know about you, but shopping at any store anywhere on the globe with five children is really stressful. I mean, uh, really, frankly, one is, is stressful too, but five especially stressful. So we're walking down the aisles with our five little kiddos, and I, I get to the point where I'm, I'm about done. And so uh, Holly is left in the checkout aisle to pay for the groceries and get out. And I take the five kids, and we wait outside the grocery store on a sidewalk right near the parking lot. And I'm just standing there. Ezekiel's in his stroller, and the other four just kind of hanging around. We're just sitting there talking a little bit. And a parking lot attendant comes up to me. And uh, he, he says to me in Spanish uh, something like, uh, Todos tu hijos, are these all your children? And, uh, you know, Holly and I, uh, we were used to this. Um, you can't have more than two children in 21st century America and walk around anywhere in public and people not say something to you like, are these all yours? Or, you know, we're, you know how to stop that, don't you? You know, something like that. Um, and so we're used to this sort of question. And uh, so I respond to the parking lot attendant, see, yes, they're all mine. And he looks at my kids again, and he looks at me, and he, he says, Todos? All of them? Yeah, they're all mine. See, they're all mine. And he looks again at my children, one by one, at my five children. And at this point, it clicks. I'm a little bit slow, but at this point, it clicks. Oh, okay, I understand what he's asking. And he takes his finger, and he points at Ezekiel in the stroller, and he says, what about that one? Is that one yours too? And I said, yes, in broken Spanish, he's my son through adoption. And all of a sudden, you could see the, uh, the, 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 the lights in his eyes kind of light up. All of a sudden, he understands. And, and, and I, I think he said something like this in Spanish. He says, oh, okay, because that one is a lot darker than your other kids. Well, thank you, sir, for pointing that out to me. Um, there, there's something about Ezekiel's story that didn't make sense for this man until he knew that it was an adoption story. And I think something similar happens to us in our story today in Matthew chapter 1, starting in verse 18. You heard it read earlier, and, and, and if, you, if you're familiar with the New Testament, you know this is one of those stories that we love to tell at Christmas time. But, but whether we realize it or not, I think many of us look at the characters in the Christmas story, you know, all the different characters we have in our nativity sets at home, and we look at those characters the way that that parking lot attendant in Bogota looked at my children. One of these is not like the other. Jesus, you know, the baby in a manger, he's central to the Christmas story, so we know he's important. 
Mary, she's the one that, that delivers Jesus. It's in her womb that, that this baby grows and through her he's born. And so, of course, Mary's important. The shepherds are there and, and, and they show you that, that, that Jesus comes for unlikely and lowly people. So, of course, they're important. The wise men are there and they, they show you that, that Jesus is to be worshipped even by kings and wise people. So, of course, they're important. The angel, it's through the angel that Mary knows that she's expecting and so, of course, the angel is important. Even the stable, even the manger is important because it shows you that, that Jesus kind of comes from lowly, humble beginnings. But I think sometimes we look at Joseph and we think one of these guys is not like the other. What's Joseph's role in the Christmas story? Is Joseph just kind of like a glorified usher? Yeah, he brings Mary to Bethlehem and then eventually brings her to Egypt and then back to Nazareth and then eventually at 12 to the temple in Jerusalem. Is he just kind of a, the guy that takes people places and that's it? Perhaps some of us think of Jesus the way some people think about Indiana Jones in the Raiders of the Lost Ark. You've heard that, haven't you, that the, the, the whole storyline of the Raiders of the Lost Ark, everything would have happened just how it happened even if Indiana Jones wasn't in the story. And I might have just ruined it for you, and for that I'm sorry. Maybe we think about Joseph like that. I mean, he, is he really that necessary to the Christmas story? Is he really that necessary to what's going on? Uh, this morning, I, I want you to see that Joseph is more than a walk-on character in the Christmas story. He's more than an usher. His story makes sense when you understand that this is an adoption story. But from the very beginning of our text in Matthew this morning, Matthew wants us to understand that this adoption story is different. So look with me beginning in verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. If you were with us last week when we studied the genealogy, you remember that word at the beginning in verse 1, Biblos Geneseos, a book of origins. And that word Geneseos, Genesis, origin, that word is used in, in Genesis 2, it's used in uh, Genesis 5, it's used in Matthew 1, verse 1, and it's used again here in verse 18. So when it says birth, Matthew's really saying that the, the Genesis, the origin story of Jesus is here. This is a new kind of Genesis this is a new kind of creation that's happening as God himself comes. And so as we study our text this morning, we're going to see a portrait of Jesus, the object of our faith. But as the story continues, you're going to notice that Matthew's version of the Christmas story is different from Luke's. Now, they're not contradictory. They're not. They're not but, but they're telling the story from different perspectives, if you're familiar with the Luke story, remember the story that, that Linus tells in uh, A Charlie Brown Christmas? That's Luke's version of events. And they're not contradictory, but Luke is telling us the story from Mary's perspective. Matthew tells us the story from Joseph's perspective. Why? Because Jesus, 
has a claim to the throne as king of kings through his adopted daddy, Joseph. Which is why in chapter 1, verse 20, the angel refers to Joseph as a son of David. So as we study this story, we'll see a portrait of Joseph, an example in the faith. This morning, with, with God's help, I want you to see that this story is, is much more than a, a neat little story to dust off the shelves every December. This story is an invitation to faith. It's an invitation to believe. So first of all, this morning, with God's help, I want to show you the object of our faith. Matthew is pleading with us to know Jesus as the object of our faith. Years and years ago, um, when I used to listen to Christian radio, they played this song that drove me crazy. Maybe this is what made me quit. I don't know. The song goes like this. Maybe you've heard it. I've seen dreams that move the mountains, hope that doesn't ever end, even when the sky is falling. I've seen miracles just happen. Silent prayers get answered. Broken hearts become brand new. That's what faith can do. Can I just be honest with you this morning? I think that song is stupid. Children, I'm sorry. You Parents, you're going to have to have a conversation about why the pastor said the S word. But I don't like that song because... Faith cannot do anything. Faith is powerless apart from its object. Like an extension cord that only has power when it's plugged into an electrical outlet that's hot, faith only can do anything if it's plugged into something or someone concrete, someone trustworthy, someone, something with power, something that matters, something that's true. So here's my question this morning before I show you what Matthew has to say about the object of our faith. Is your faith like an unplugged extension cord? Is your faith, is your, is your faith in your faith? Look at this great extension cord I have, but it's not plugged into anything. You're just, you're, you're trusting in trust. Your faith is in faith, but faith has no power unless it's plugged into something that matters, something that's true. Where is your faith? Matthew invites you and me to know Jesus as the object of our faith. I want you to notice in this adoption story three truths that this story teaches us about Jesus. Number one, he is truly God. Jesus is truly God. Look at Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Now, there, there's a lot of cultural unpacking we have to do just to understand that verse. Because we don't talk about being betrothed very much anymore. I do remember years ago, uh, when I was 12 years old, uh, it, I was in a drive through line with my father for a McDonald's. And you just need to know something about my family. We were uh, very, very... 
uh, how do I say this? Kind of, we are very ultra homeschooled. Homeschoolers, I love you. We're a homeschooling family. But if you, know, if you know what that means, you know what that means. We'll just leave it at that. And um, very conservative, very kind of strict Christian upbringing. And I remember, vividly remember, at 12 years old, being in a McDonald's drive-thru with my father, and we're about to order. And I'm, I'm thinking about Big Mac, McChicken, you know. And my dad asks me, how would you like to be betrothed? And I'm just like, I, I'm trying to decide if I want a Big Mac, if I want to get this supersized or not. I, I'm 12. I don't, I don't really know what to make of this. <clears throat> Long story short, the betrothal did not happen. By the time we were done and got paid for our order, we had pretty much put that to rest. By God's grace, because that would not be where I am with a lovely woman I'm with today. Betrothal is kind of, it's a, it's a relic from an era with many arranged marriages. And that was certainly the world in which Mary and Joseph lived. And often, mom and dad would come together and, and they think that this one is right for this one. And, and there would be this betrothal, kind of like an engagement. But during that engagement period, it would be much more binding than our modern engagement. So you might know someone, perhaps even yourself, broken off an engagement at some point in life. But breaking off a betrothal was something that very rarely, if ever, happened. So Mary and Joseph are betrothed. They're, they're promised for each other, but they're not yet married. It's a really binding promise, which is why later Joseph will talk about divorcing her because it, was, it required a legal process to end a betrothal. But they were not yet married. They would not consummate the marriage. They would not be together physically until after the marriage ceremony. And it's in this window, at this time, when Mary is found to be with child. Now, Again, in Mary and Joseph's day, this betrothal period is not at all like what many would view the engagement period today. There are, by God's grace, many Christian couples that will be faithful and pure in their relationship, physical relationship towards one another until marriage. But even among professing Christians, that's becoming more and more unlikely. So in 2019... Perhaps you heard the story of Chris Pratt and his fiancée, Catherine Schwarzenegger. Uh, they announced that they would not move in together until they were engaged because of their Christian faith. So because they were Christians, they were going to wait until engagement. But throughout the scriptures, the, the pattern, the clear pattern and clear teaching is that sex is to be reserved for marriage between one man and one woman. Joseph, Mary, they took this seriously. Now, Joseph wasn't perfect. Mary wasn't perfect, but both of them were pure. And just as a side note here, brother, sister, friend, even in a hypersexual culture, it is possible to be pure. It's possible to be pure. But, as the story goes, Mary, Joseph, betrothed, promised to each other, haven't yet come together. The marriage hasn't been formalized or consummated, and Mary has a baby on the way. 
Mary's pregnancy, we need to understand, is unlike any in human history. Russell Moore, in his book, Adopted for Life, says this, Joseph was not Jesus's biological father. Not a trace of Joseph's sperm was involved in the formation of the embryo Christ. No amount of Jesus, of Joseph's, uh, rather, DNA could be found in the dried blood of Jesus peeled from the wood of Golgotha's cross. Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit completely apart from the will or exertion of any man. Perhaps you're thinking, well, how can that be? That's exactly the question that Mary asked when in Luke's account, an angel comes to her and says, you're going to have a baby. Listen to Luke chapter 1, verses 34 and 35. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Now, I want you to notice what Luke is doing. Luke is saying that the virgin conception of this baby is evidence of his deity. It's one of the ways we know that he's God. He is not the product of a man and a woman coming together. This is God himself on the way. Matthew does the same thing. If you go back to Matthew 1, look at verses 22 and 23. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. The virgin conception is evidence that Jesus is truly God. Second thing we learn about Jesus, the object of our faith, is that he is truly man. Jesus is truly man. Look at verse 18 again. Mary was found to be with what? Child. She's having a baby. Now, I don't know if any of you have ever taken time to look at... Um, Pictures of the Mary and the baby Jesus throughout church history. You ever looked at some of those medieval or Renaissance paintings of Jesus and the Christ child? Listen, that baby looks weird. Seriously, look at some of the pictures. It looks like a, a, a little man just sitting on Ma Mary's lap. Like a man baby or like a, a baby with a, this weird freakish glow about him or a halo on his head. Listen, that's not what happened. When, when, when Jesus breathes his first breath of oxygen, he looks just like an ordinary baby boy. He is a bed-wetting, milk-drinking, crying, cooing baby boy. He's truly man. So the, the old Christmas song, the little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. Sing the song if you want to, but that's not true. Babies cry. Jesus was a real baby. He is truly man. He was true, a true man physically. He slept. In fact, one of the, go the Gospels tell us the story of, of one time when Jesus is so tired, so exhausted from ministry and giving himself to people 
all day long and waking up early to pray. He's so exhausted, he gets in a boat, he falls asleep in the middle of a storm that's so severe, the disciples think, and there, many of them are fishermen, by the way, they think they're going to die and Jesus is still asleep. He's that exhausted, like some of you right now. That was just a test to see if you were listening. He was a real human, truly man. He really slept. He really ate. On the cross, he says, I'm thirsty to fulfill prophecy, but also because he really was. He was a true human mentally. Luke chapter 2 tells us that Jesus grew in wisdom and in knowledge and in favor with God and man. So Jesus learned things. I want you to think about that for a second. He's, he's truly God, omniscient, knows all things, and yet in his flesh he is learning. He's truly man. He's a true human emotionally. Jesus cried. He wept. He was troubled. Well, the Bible doesn't specifically say this. I think it's fair to assume that Jesus laughed and smiled. All the emotions that a human can have without sin, so too Jesus can have. Every, everybody knew that Jesus was human. It was, it was the fact that Jesus was divine. That was hard for people to accept. Everybody knew that he was human. They could see it. They knew he was human. So think about Matthew 13, a little bit later in this story in verses 54 to 56. Matthew tells us this. Coming to his hometown, this is Jesus' hometown in Nazareth, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished. And they said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Isn't this the carpenter's son? We know his daddy. Isn't his mother called Mary? Aren't his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? By the way, that's not Judas who betrayed Jesus. That's a different Judas. It was a popular name in those days. And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? So they're looking at Jesus and they say, we know his daddy, we know his mom, we know his brothers and his sisters. He's a man. How does he have this power? And by the way, I think it's important to note that this verse totally shatters the, the myth taught by our Roman Catholic friends that Mary was a perpetual virgin. That's not true. Jesus had biological brothers and sisters, half-brothers and half-sisters, including two men who wrote two of the books in our New Testament, James and Jude, called Judas here in Matthew 13. So Joseph and Mary went on to have other children like normal couples because they were a normal human couple. But these verses also demonstrate that Jesus is truly human. He looks like just an ordinary guy. He's not walking around with a halo on his head. He's truly God, he's truly man, and he is the Savior. Look at chapter 1, verse 21. The angel talking to Joseph says that Mary will bear a son, and you, Joseph, shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now, now how, do, how will Jesus save his people from their sins? If you know the gospel stories, you know that he does it by dying in their place. 
So Jesus says in Matthew 20, verse 28, the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus came to die. That's why he came. Multiple times before Jesus went to the cross, Jesus predicted his death and his resurrection because that's why he came. He knew why he was here. He came to save his people from their sins, and he would do that by dying in their place. Now, I want you to notice something, brother, sister, friend. Listen to me. If you want Jesus as your Savior, you must know him as both truly God and truly man. If he's not both, he cannot save you. Because only God can live without sin. Only God can live without sin. Only God can die not only for, if you and I were to try to die for someone else, you could maybe, maybe, you could, you could die in someone else's place, but you have your own sins to pay for. Jesus has none of his own sins to pay for. He can die and pay for your sins on the cross because he's eternal. And in three hours of suffering on the cross, an eternal God is able to pay the debt of all of his people, sin. Only God can do that. Only God can rise from the dead three days later. But only man, only man can be tempted, yet live fully obedient to God's law. Only man can suffer and die. So Jesus is truly God and truly man. And it's not incidental that most of the, the heresies that have sprung up throughout church history and even in our world today, they deny one of these truths about Jesus. They deny his divinity or they deny his humanity. We must be the people that affirm both because both are taught clearly in Scripture, even from the very beginning of Matthew's gospel. He's truly God. He's truly man. So here's the question, brother, sister, friend. What is your faith connected to? What is the object of your faith? What are you trusting in right now? Is your faith like a unplugged extension cord is your faith in faith listen you could take that extension cord and plug it into a bowl of mashed potatoes it doesn't do anything for you you can have faith in all sorts of things but jesus says i am the way the truth and the life and no one comes to the father but through me put your faith in him only in him so this story, this adoption story invites us to know Jesus as the object of our faith. This story also invites us to follow an example of true faith. Follow an example of true faith. I love the introduction to Sally Lloyd-Jones's Jesus Storybook Bible. She says this, she says, some people think the Bible is a book of heroes showing you people you should copy. The Bible does have some heroes in it, but most of the people in the Bible aren't heroes at all. They make some big mistakes, sometimes on purpose. They get afraid and run away. At times, they're downright mean. Now, Sally Lloyd-Jones is right. The, the Bible isn't primarily a book of heroes. There's, there's one hero in every story and every book. His name is Jesus. He's the hero. 
Okay, so, so if you hear preaching or Bible studies that all the time are telling you, be like Daniel, be like Esther, be like David, do this, do that, but they never point you to Christ, they're missing the hero. He's the hero. He's the point. But we can follow in some areas and some things little heroes, not fully, not completely, not apart from Jesus, but we can learn even from the faith of someone like Joseph. And in Joseph here, we see an example of true faith. True faith. Perhaps you're wondering why I'm using the phrase true faith. Not all faith is created equal. Listen, you can have faith in this room this morning, and you can even have some faith in Jesus, and it can be false faith. Joseph's biological son, James, wrote a lot about faith, and he says this in James chapter 2, verse 19. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Demons have a type of faith, but it's not true faith. But Joseph is an example for us of true faith. I want you to see three lessons that Joseph teaches us about true faith. First of all, true faith is never easy. True faith is never easy. A virgin-born baby, a sinless man, walking on water, feeding 5,000 people with the equivalent of a Captain D's Happy Meal. A crucified God. Resurrection. He said, those things are too hard for me to believe. Maybe you're in this room and you're on the fence about this whole Christianity thing because those things are so hard to believe. Listen to me. This was never easy to believe. It's never been easy to believe. Maybe you look at this story and you say, the idea that, that a baby could be born of a virgin, man, I can't believe that. Uh, you know, we know scientifically, we know that's not how it works. Can I tell you something? Joseph knew that too. Russ Moore says when, when Mary tells Joseph that, that she's pregnant, and, and uh, she hasn't been with another man, and the baby has been given to her by the Holy Spirit, Joseph's first response is not to say, wow, it's beginning to look a lot like Christmas. <laughs> That's not what he does. Why? Because Joseph knew. He assumed what everybody would assume, that, that this woman that I've been preparing for has been unfaithful to me. And so... He does what any of us would have done. And he prepares to end the relationship. Look at 119. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. In the original language, that word husband literally just says man. So her man, the, the man that was promised to her, her betrothed, her fiance, the man who would be her husband, Joseph, He's a just man. He's a, he's a rule follower. He knows God's law, and he wants to obey it. And yet, he doesn't want to shame Mary. He knows what Deuteronomy requires be done to a woman who has broken a relationship in this way. He doesn't want to put her to shame. And so he's at war with himself. He wants to obey God's laws, and yet he doesn't want to shame this girl. 
And so he decides to divorce her quietly. But here, here's the point, brother, sister, friend. It is always hard to believe. True faith, true faith is never easy. Virgins don't have babies. People don't walk on water. A few pieces of bread and fish don't feed thousands of people. Blind people don't see. Deaf people don't hear. Lame people don't walk. Leopards, lepers, not leopards, lepers don't just get cleansed. Dead people don't come back to life. None of those things happen naturally, ordinarily. To believe in any of those things requires belief in something, someone that you cannot see or fully understand. Faith invites you to believe more than what your eyes can see. And that is never easy. Perhaps you're in the room and you're thinking, well, it's not hard for me to believe. I always believe. You're a super spiritual Christian. Don't let anyone fool you with that. Every single person in this room, it is hard for you to believe something that the Bible teaches you. Let me give you two quick examples. Matthew 10. Put it up on the screen. Matthew 10, 29 to 31. Are not two, these are the words of Jesus. Jesus says, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs on your head are numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. Okay, question. Is any Christian in this room ever afraid? Ever. If you have the courage to nod, yeah, I'm afraid sometimes. Why? Because it's hard for you to believe that. It's hard for you to believe that there really is a heavenly father that is in control and he really loves you and he really, yes, really looks at you as more valuable than sparrows. If you fear anything ever, it's because that is hard for you to believe sometimes. Here's another example, Matthew 11, verses 28 to 30. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Christians in the room, are you ever slow to run to Jesus? Are you ever slow to run to Jesus? Do you ever ignore him when things are going well because you don't seem to need him as much in the moment? Do you ever, when you sin, in your guilt and in your shame, hide from him because how could he love you now? How could he care for me when I'm like this? And so like Adam and Eve in the garden, you cover yourself in shame and you hide from him. Do you ever look at his laws and what he requires of you and say, that's too hard, I can't do that. If you do any of those things ever, it's because that's hard for you to believe. It's hard for you to really believe that Jesus wants you to come to him. 
it's hard for you to really believe that Jesus really is gentle and lowly in heart. It's hard for you to really believe that his burden is easy, his his yoke is easy, and his burden is light. It's hard for you to believe. Why? Because true faith is never easy. It's always hard. Can I just say something, brother, sister, friend? There's comfort in that. If PBC can be anything, let's be a place where we can say, honestly, I'm struggling to believe this right now. If we can't admit that, we got problems, folks. It's hard to believe sometimes for all of us because true faith is never easy. Joseph also shows us that true faith is never blind. True faith is never blind. Ben Franklin once famously said, the way to see by faith is to shut the eye of reason. In other words, if you want to believe, here's what you do. Turn off your reason. Quit trying to make sense of it. Don't worry about it. Just close your eyes and take a blind leap of faith. That's as ridiculous as plugging an extension cord into a bowl of mashed potatoes. Blind faith is not what Jesus calls you to. It's not what Jesus calls you to. It's not what the God of the Bible has ever called his people to. He caused them to respond to revelation. He reveals himself to his people. He says something to them, and then he says, believe it. Believe it. That's exactly what Joseph does. Look at 1, 20 and 21. As he considered these things, so Joseph, is, he's, not an, he's not a rash guy. He's thinking about it. He's praying about it. He's trying to decide what he's going to do with the Mary situation. And as he's considering these things, an angel of the Lord. So God sends an angel to Joseph in a dream. And he says, Joseph, son of Mary, or son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Here's the point. Joseph doesn't adopt Jesus based on blind faith. Mary comes to Joseph and says, I'm pregnant. Joseph doesn't say, okay, great. Let's let's keep going. Let's move ahead with this. No, God reveals himself to Joseph. And then Joseph responds in faith. Maybe you're thinking, well, I would believe if God would appear to me like that. If God would come to me in a dream. If God would talk to me, then I'd believe. Listen to Hebrews chapter 1. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us. How? By his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Brother, sister, friend, I plead you, I plead with you, Don't just close your eyes and jump in blind faith. Examine the scriptures and what they say about this Jesus and trust what it says. God has spoken to you, Christian. He has revealed himself to you, not in a dream, but in the pages of scripture, in the story of his son. He invites you to consider it and believe. True faith is never easy and it's never blind. But true faith always works. True faith always works. In other words, true faith is a faith that doesn't merely say, I believe, 
True faith is a faith that responds, that acts, that gets busy, that gets to work. So many, many years after an angel tells Joseph to adopt Jesus, Joseph's biological son, James, writes this about true faith in James chapter 2. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed, and be filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Dear brother, sister, friend, You can say, I believe all you want to, but here's the question. Does your faith go to work? Does your life give evidence that you believe? Joseph's life did. Chapter 1, verses 24 and 25, when Joseph woke from sleep, what does he do? He did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not, wasn't with her intimately, until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Joseph's faith went to work. Does yours, Christian? Does your your faith work? Listen, none of us will face a situation like Joseph's. The virgin conception was a one-time historical event that will never happen again. Never again will a man be asked to marry his virgin fiance and care for her and her unborn, supernaturally conceived child. It's never happening again. But there is a sense in which Joseph's story isn't unique at all. Since the first Adam fell, our world has been filled for us to follow in Joseph's footsteps. Not not surprisingly, Joseph's son, James, again, tells us one of the clearest examples, evidences of true faith is to care for the most vulnerable of people. James chapter 1, verse 27, he says, pure or religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows and their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. One of the best examples of true faith that works is faith that leans in to visit, to care for those that are most vulnerable. Just think about what's happened in Afghanistan. Can I tell you something? When the enemy, when the enemy is on the move, it's usually the most vulnerable that are in the crosshairs. Usually that's women and children. Which is why James says care for widows and orphans in their affliction. A woman without someone to care for her and an orphan without a mother and a father. So think about Afghanistan. Perhaps you've seen the pictures of the advertisements with pictures of women and their faces painted over throughout the city. Or who can forget the, the snapshot of parents hoisting up a baby over a barbed wired wall because to be separated from my child is better than my child staying here. 
visit orphans and widows in their affliction. Maybe you say, well, Afghanistan's so far away. What, what can I do about it? Think about your own zip code, brother, sister, friend. There are single moms in your zip code struggling to make ends meet, feeling like damaged goods because they chose life in a culture of death. There are are pregnant teenage girls thinking about driving to the clinic on Jefferson Avenue tomorrow because their boyfriends told them to take care of it. Or maybe their dads told them to take care of it. There are young children bouncing from one foster home to another, wondering if this year they'll get Christmas presents. There are high schoolers about to age out of the foster care system, and if the statistics are right, they're doomed to a life of homelessness, crime, drug abuse, and worse. Religion that is pure in the sight of God our Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Dear Christian, if you want to follow in the footsteps of Joseph's faith, get to work caring for the most vulnerable. Not everybody has to do it in the same way. But if we have received love like this, we ought to be those who give love like this. Right around Thanksgiving last year, Holly and I received a call from our adoption agency that we had been matched, potentially matched with a child. And one of the questions they asked us was, are you okay with a dark-skinned child? Some people aren't. Um, Apparently, some people don't want to adopt someone that isn't like them. There's a fear for some that this child won't fit in. Listen, if, if anybody should have felt that way, it would have been Joseph. Think about it. He's a sinful man, and he's being asked by naming the child, that's adopting him. He's legally saying he's mine. He is being asked to be the adoptive daddy of God. Talk about not being able to fit in. That's what he's being asked to do. How does a simple carpenter from Nazareth bond with his adopted son when his adopted son breathed him into existence? Joseph's adoption of Jesus is an incredible thing. But can I tell you something? It points us us to another adoption that is just as incredible. An adoption where you would think the adoptees would never fit in. The Bible tells us in Galatians chapter 4 that when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. God sent his son, Jesus Christ, so that you could be adopted into the family of God, that Jesus could be your big brother, that you could be a child of God the Father, and that you could be a part of this family. I think if you're in this room and you're a follower of Jesus, that ought to be the most amazing news 
you could contemplate that and meditate on it for the rest of your life, that God would choose to invite you into his family and love you, Christian, with the same affection that he has for his own son. God could no sooner mistreat you, his child, than he would mistreat his own son. He could no sooner cast you out from his family, Christian, than he would cast the son out of the Godhead. You are that loved. You are that welcomed. You are adopted into the family of God. And here's the amazing thing. You're a father of Jesus. One of the biggest challenges for us as families welcome the child in through adoption is getting the, the siblings to get along together and, and dealing with that dynamic. Isn't that true for us too? Man, this life following Jesus, there's somebody sitting near you, Christian, that bothers you sometimes. And yet, they're your sister. They're your brother if they're in Christ. And every time we gather for communion, we are taking a family meal and we're saying we're in this together. And our job is to sort it out, deal with it, come together, love one another as we praise the King of Kings, Jesus Christ. That's why we're here. If you're in this room and you're not a follower of Jesus, we invite you, we plead with you to meet him today. We're going to transition now to a time of communion. This is, as I said, our, our family dinner. The scripture says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 that as often as we eat this bread and drink the cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. <clears throat> 